Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light and the CEO of the Robert Menzies Institute. The Institute is a Prime Ministerial Library and Museum devoted to upholding the legacy and vision of Sir Robert Menzies, Australia's longest serving Prime Minister. On Afternoon Light, we explore contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. Hello and welcome to the Afternoon Light podcast. Today I am speaking to Will Sanders, who is an honorary associate professor with the Centre for Aboriginal Economic Policy Research at the Australian National University. He regularly works on Indigenous people's participation in elections, on housing and social security policy issues and on federal and intergovernmental aspects of Indigenous affairs policy. Welcome, Will, to the Afternoon Light podcast. Thank you, Jordana. My pleasure to be with you. It's great to have you on the podcast and today we're going to talk about Indigenous policy in the Menzies era and particularly the contribution of Menzies Minister for Territories, Paul Hasluck, who was Minister from 1951 yep. to 63. You know, it doesn't bear thinking about being a Minister for 12 years these days. 12 years. <laughs> quite an extraordinary... And then in, then he followed through with being um, Minister for External Affairs as well, didn't he? So, Correct. Uh, yep. An extraordinary yeah. achievement. But I wanted to, to start, Will, by asking you about Indigenous policy under Robert Menzies, who was Prime Minister mm. the second time around from 49 to 66, so mm. over, over mm. 16 years. What, 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 did it exist? Was it articulated as such? Well, I think the first thing you need to think about thinking back that far is that Indigenous policy was prime in those years for the Commonwealth was primarily conducted through territories policy. So as you've just noted, Minister Hasluck was Minister for Territories and as Minister for Territories, he convened an Aboriginal Welfare Council of the various state ministers for Aboriginal welfare. So most of what we now think of as Indigenous policy was conducted through the Commonwealth Territories portfolio. On, and that had the important implication that the, the states were more seen as equals in that arrangement. It was Hasluck as Minister for Territories was sort of the leader of the Indigenous ministers around the country. There's no two ways about that, but he was on the same level because he was running a region, policy in a region, uh, like others were, uh, rather than running policy nationally. So that's a big change. When you, you need to think about that when you're thinking your way back into this stuff. Mm. And, of course, that, yeah. that limited the ability of the Commonwealth to do very much outside of the, uh, the territory. Yeah. One of the things I, I wrote about a quarter of a century ago was there was pressure for the Commonwealth to do more through uh, using its monetary powers, but both Hasluck and Menzies resisted making Section 96-type grants to the states to help them with Aboriginal welfare issues. They thought that, you know, each jurisdiction should use its own money to do its own Indigenous policy and they weren't going to try and influence what people did by spending money with and putting conditions on it. 
which is sort of what we have done in later years through uh, the the post sixty seven pattern, is to sort of you know, well, Commonwealth says we want this done, we'll give you the money to do it on these conditions. That sort of pattern. So they were very much against that pattern. Um, so the Commonwealth could have done more, but it didn't want to. Uh, it wanted to just be running the doing Indigenous policy in the territory or in the territories and leaving the states to their own devices. And Paul Haslark didn't come to this portfolio without experience. He had significant experience, didn't he? He did. In um, he did. Indigenous he, policy. Mm. Yeah, so Paul Haslark was a West Australian uh, and he had written a master's thesis on West Australian Indigenous policy from British settlement to, through to the early uh, years of the 19th, 20th century, um, the early 1900s. So he was well-versed in Indigenous policy in Western Australia and he had some fairly firm ideas of his own from being a scholar and he'd also been a journalist and in 1936 he had done, he'd followed a royal commission around Western Australia looking at Indigenous circumstances in the 1930s. So he was very well versed in Indigenous policy in Western Australia and he had fairly firm ideas of where it should be going, which was it ought to be going towards equal rights and equality before the law. So that was his big thing. Individualised legal equality was what he pushed. And I get the sense that Menzies, as his boss, was on the same wavelength and just let Hasluck get on with the job. Uh, that that's. I mean, I wasn't there watching <laughs> intently in the, in the 50s or even the 60s. I'd, by the 60s, I was a schoolboy, but I wasn't paying any attention attention to this sort of stuff. No. Uh, but just looking back at it from the 80s and 90s when I was sort of looking at this stuff, it seemed to me that Hasluck was eminently competent and deeply interested and therefore Menzies just let him run with it, I think. That, you, that's, that's my sense. Do mm. you know, Will, what led Hasluck in in Perth? He was at UWA in the 30s. Mm. What led mm. him to want to do a master's thesis on Aboriginal affairs? Because it would have been not a terribly mainstream field of mm. inquiry back in the 1930s, I wouldn't have thought. Was there something, an experience that he had or was it was it commonly studied at UWA back then? I wouldn't have thought it was particularly commonly studied. Oh, yeah. um, has luck. Look, I, I did, when I was doing this, work, Hasluck was an in, a person who interested me and he does seem to have been quite a reformer in his own right in Indigenous affairs in the 30s and 40s and 50s. Like, you know, pushing for equal rights then was sort of pushing against a sort of pattern of separate restrictive laws justified in in the name of protection. And so I think in that sense, Hasluck was in his time a reformer uh, and quite a questioning sort of person, uh, you know, 
why do we have these separate restrictive protective laws? But in by the end of his 30 years in politics, equal rights was not where the action was. So in the end, he, he looked like, I like maybe like we all do, that you know, it was sort of some echo of the past. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I think he was an interest, genuinely interesting person. It was him that really got me into thinking about the Menzies era because I, as I, you know, I did my PhD on the inclusion of Aboriginal people in the social security system in this period of the 50s and 60s and 70s. And this notion of equal rights was very important to that. Yes. Uh, to, because they had been legislatively excluded. Aboriginal natives were le- legislatively excluded. And then there was, so there had to be a process of bringing them in or, or getting rid of these exclusionary provisions. Yeah. And so the idea of equal rights was a reforming idea to to give people access and give Indigenous people access to social security. And, of course, it was a very small-L liberal idea of, of equality yes. as well. The um, interesting thing that Hasluck introduced, different from the state policies of protective segregation she were describing, mm. Mm. was this sort of idea of assimilation. And we've seen this in Australia, not just with Indigenous policy, but of yeah. course in migration policy as well, um, where you you know mm. my, new migrants to Australia are asked to assimilate to become like as yes. other Australians rather than sort of identify strongly with their own culture once they once they come yep. to Australia. He, he ends up looking a bit like a conservative there because he does he doesn't really embrace the idea that Indigenous people will want to continue to identify with and. Uh, their existing Indigenous culture. So that's where he ends up looking like a conservative. But, you know, he, he sort of um, – this it's a, this inclusive equal rights push is quite progressive at, at the time. So it is interesting how you can sort of move from being progressive inclusive to being a group cons- – he, he was at the same time a, a sort of group conservative. So. And so can you talk, talk a bit about – what his position on assimilation was in the in the well, in the forties, but 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 through fifties and sixties. Look, I, I think he thought that Aboriginal society was sort of being destroyed by um, settlement, uh, by invasion, and so that the best chance that Indigenous people had was to sort of follow this equal rights path and become. You know, a part assimilate into the dominant society. Uh, I don't, and you know, in a sense, that's the sort you talk about this in in the migrant policy tradition as well. You know, the best chance the people have is to assimilate and get on in the dominant society. What that sort of line underappreciates is how much people will want to continue to sort of draw from their roots and their heritage. And so that comes back to the fore in, in, in this sort of, you know, Walpery want to be Walpery and uh, Naranjeri want to be Naranjeri. And, uh, and so that people have these group attachments that they feel very strongly and they want to develop and follow through on. They want to revive languages or keep languages and, uh, not just join in the dominant English-speaking 
colonial society. So, yeah. And so this this policy of assimilation that that Haslack was introducing and and fostering, he introduces this, and I think it's adopted by um, a meeting of Commonwealth and state ministers in January 1961 Mm. and really became the cornerstone of of Indigenous policy up until the middle of the 1970s. How was it actually affected then through what sort of policies were we seeing? Well, a lot of the legislative change was towards equal rights. So there were lots of provisions in lots of pieces of both Commonwealth and state legislation which restricted Aboriginal people's rights under that legislation. And so that's where a lot of the work was done in Indigenous policy during these years. And there's a lot of steps involved. It's not just one or two steps. So in the Social Security legislation, you get... A three-step, you get a, a four, 1949 step in like in the 1940s and before, basically Aboriginal natives are all excluded from so, the Social Security legislation. In 1949, ex-servicemen get access to Social Security uh, because there's quite a few Indigenous people who've served in World War II and, you know, it's sort of you've allowed us to serve to fight for the country, but but you're not giving us social security. So they got access in 49. And then uh, in 59, there was a general exclusion. There was a big fanfare about a general inclusion, but a, a new phrase was invented called nomadic and primitive. The, the nomadic and primitive Aboriginal natives were not included. And then it was 1966 that you get the third step where literally you get to the point where the social security legislation has no references in it to Aboriginal natives at all. So it's sort of inclusion by not referring to a category of people, which is a sort of a funny negative form of public policy, but it, it's you can understand it. It's, it's very much in line with this equal rights idea that, yeah. that Haslack had in mind that, uh, and, and I think Menzies went along with, that you include people by getting rid of the exclusionary provisions and what you get is bodies of laws which just make no reference at all. No, they just Aboriginal cover natives. everyone. They're universal yeah. in their application yeah. Yeah, they don't identify yeah. a group yeah. per se. And that's the, that's, so that's the basic pattern. And, of course, one of the things to note is that those three notes, those three dates in the Social Security legislation are all pre-1967. This, you don't yes. need 1967 uh, constitutional alteration reference to do this. You can, you can write general laws from a Commonwealth perspective which exclude Aboriginal people or you can write general laws, Commonwealth laws, which include Aboriginal people by not referring to them. <laughs> and you can do that entirely without raising this issue of, Section 5126 of the Commonwealth Constitution and its its span. So, and that's what Hasluck and Menzies were doing. Interestingly, of course, if you, the Social Security story, which is the one that drew me in as a PhD student back in the early 80s, which I was sort of fascinating, uh, is less well known than the franchise story the, yeah. uh, the, the getting the vote but I don't even think I don't think that the um, vote is all that well understood because it went down a slightly different path we, because we had uh, compulsory voting so uh, most people if they if they know that the 
the vote didn't change in 1967. They know that it's probably changed in 1962. Uh, But most people haven't thought about it all that much because what what happened in 1962 is that Aboriginal natives got the right to voluntary enrolment because there was quite a lot of reservation about making it compulsory, like it had been compulsory for Australians over 18 since 1924 to enrol to vote, and it was sort of there were reservations about making it compulsory for Aboriginal people to vote. And, in fact, it wasn't until the Hawke government in late 1983 that uh, Indigenous people were put on the level of it being compulsory for them to enrol with us. So there's a really interesting period there between 62 and 83 where it was voluntary for Aboriginal people to enrol to vote, but it was compulsory for other people. And and was that because of the difficulties getting to polling booths, the difficulties registering for Aboriginal people to enrol to vote and um, find a you know an address that they could register? Is that is that what was behind that? Oh, or I don't. Was it? No, I don't think it was that really. I think it was simply a matter of it seemed rather draconian to go in one big step from excluding Aboriginal natives from voting to making it compulsory for them to enrol to vote. Uh, so that there was this sort of halfway period where it was sort of, oh, well, we'll make it voluntary for people to enrol. But if you enrol, you you sort of get lost in the role anyway. You're not identified on the role as Aboriginal. So you then get subject to the compulsory voting provisions. Once, If you put yourself on the roll, it's compulsory for you to vote like it's compulsory for anyone else to vote and, you know, if you don't, you'll be found like anyone else because, because you just disappear into the Commonwealth electoral roll without being identified as Aboriginal. Sure. But if you, perchance, weren't enrolled in those years, you could say, oh, well, I'm not enrolled because I'm Aboriginal and I, under the legislation, I have the right it's voluntary. And there were some other interesting aspects to it, there, it that it, to induce Aboriginal people to enrol was a criminal offence during those right? years. You had, oh. yeah. Criminal <laughs> offence. <laughs> yeah, because it was sort of, um, you know, we didn't want unnecessary un- undue influence to recruit people. Sure. Uh, it, it, had, it had to be a sort of free, informed decision of the individual, not someone heavying someone else to to um, enrol to vote. So, yeah, it's possibly not all that well appreciated that that interim step with, that the Menzies government set up of voluntary voting for Aboriginal people in 62 lasted right through till 83. What was the level of enrolment like once... Aboriginal uh, people were able was, to enrol yeah. in 1962. Did, was there a yeah. rush or was it in dribs and drabs? It's a little bit hard to tell. Um, there was some work done in the 70s in Western Australia which suggested maybe half were enrolled. I suspect there'd be quite a lot of regional differences around the country, so not a lot of work done on it, but certainly when it became comes compulsory for people to enrol in 83 84 uh, after the Hawke government's changes 
the electoral commission feels it has to do quite a lot of work getting out there mm. and uh, and, and educating people and encouraging people, and uh, so that tells you that that there's but they sort of they haven't really pushed um, pushed it before then, and and of course they come up against this undue influence. You know, the it's an offence to induce people's enrolment, so they feel constrained up until eighty three, eighty four. Right. So all all that suggests that enrolment during those years among in- Aboriginal people was probably quite low, but it was also probably quite geographically variable, I suspect. Yeah, presumably more remote areas it would have been a little lower than re- I suspect metropolitan so. yeah. areas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. We well, just coming back to the um, assimilation issue, were there mm. any improvements amongst Aboriginal people in Australia on the basis of those policies, do you think? There's always shades of grey with public policy, I appreciate. Look, I, I tend to sort of refer to it as the equal rights era. I think there was a lot of appreciation of equal rights uh, in that times. Uh, so Indigenous people were very happy to get equal rights. You know, these yeah. ex go back to the late 40s, these ex-servicemen getting equal rights. They thought that was a great so there was a sort of sense of empowerment yeah. in some respects that, you know, now you, you're yeah. being being given equal what? rights in a prior yeah. you know before you weren't um so that was a, right. that was a distinct mm. improvement but then there were obviously some significant detrimental effects as well i think that's what comes next is that this is equal individual rights and of course there are, there's that sort of contentiousness about this is not a group focused policy this is a very individualized policy and that then becomes the next step is, well, actually we're much more focused on Indigenous groups. And Menzies and Hasluck never got to that point. In terms of, of group rights, of course, we we then have um, uh, the issues relating to, to land rights. Um, mm. And in the Menzies era, this with the, the nuclear tests in Maralinga uh, and, of course, um, up in the the Northern Territory, there was the mining mm. the mining rights that were given to mi- large mining companies, which mm. um, we, you know were given without the prior approval of the yeah. the local um, of the group, yeah, yeah Indigenous mm. people, and that ended up um, sparking the Yukala mm. Bark petitions being submitted to the to the federal parliament. Yep. So there were there were really big contentious group you know, group-led issues um, around land right. rights and sense of sovereignty that were yep. coming to the fore in the, in the well, 50s with the, the nuclear tests, of course, and then, and then later on with the, the bark petitions as well. Yeah, can they're you, 62, 63. So, I mean, you can see from those instances that the, the Menzies governments were not well attuned to responding to in, local Indigenous group petitioning of one sort or another. It just, they didn't really have a strategy for that. So that's the, that is the other side that, that, you know, they were sort of doing this individual, individualised equal rights stuff in the legislation. And that was appreciated, but they didn't have a mindset which gave them an ability to respond to this Indigenous group stuff that was building through, as you say, Maralinga and the South Australian stuff and then 
really Yerkala and the bark petitions of 63 are the really big stuff when, you know, this is Indigenous groups pushing their collective land rights uh, and don't know what to do with that. <laughs> the mindset's just not there to, to know how to respond. I mean, in a sense, to, to focus back in on um, the constitutional provisions, most people probably understand that there was two sections of the constitution which had exclusionary references to uh, Aboriginal natives in them, one of which was section 127, which simply said when counting the numbers of people of the Commonwealth, Aboriginal uh, people should not be counted. And the other one, uh, and and both Menzies and Haslock said, yeah, that's that's got to go. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but the other the other the other section of the Constitution which referred to Aboriginal people was one of the heads of power in section fifty one, so fifty one twenty six, uh, and that's the Commonwealth's race power to this day. And that that basically said the Commonwealth has a power to make special laws for the people of any race. Um, but it said other than the Aboriginal race in any state. Uh, and that's what we got rid of, or Holt got rid of in 67. But both Haslock and Mensley's thought you didn't need to get rid of that. That was actually a protection from what special laws, they they thought special laws were going to be discriminatory laws. Right. And in, in many ways, in many ways they were right because... In subsequent years, Holt took the more populist view. Uh, so both Menzies and Haslock sort of said, no, 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 we don't need to get rid of this. And particularly Menzies, the, law, the constitutional lawyer, sort of said, you know, this is, a, this is a protection against discrimination. This is not discrimination because uh, these, these special laws that would be, more, would be made would be discriminatory laws. Mm. Uh, and... So that neither of them wanted to go that way and the thing, the constitutional alteration in relation to these two provisions never went to the referendum under, under Menzies. It was sort of like holding the lawyer holding the line against the populist idea that these both had to go yeah. and that's what Holt went, went with. Uh, and so... The, after Menzies has gone, Holt says, okay, I've, I've got the message, you know, we've got to get rid of both these exclusively references from the Constitution. And, of course, it got a resounding uh, uh, vote in favour in 67. It was amazing. Yeah. 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 Nine, 91%, I right. think. It, it's, okay. it's, it's by far the biggest vote for a constitutional alteration ever. But, of course, Menzies in 20 years or well, 30 years later again, of course, Menzies was sort of proved right. I mean, the Hindmarsh Island case basically said, actually, this power section 5126 to make laws for the uh, people of any race for whom it's deemed necessary to make special laws can be used to make laws that are adverse to those people. And um, so, in a sense, Menzies was right as a constitutional lawyer. Um <laughs> But the politics had moved on. I mean, in a sense, you had to put the two together to sure. really make sense of it. That's re really interesting. That 67 referendum, it's it's sort of the, the most well-known 
I think change really before the the native title issues. Um, Absolutely. Uh, mm. In Indigenous policy and law in Australia, but it didn't happen mm. in a vacuum, as you were explaining. I mean, there was lots that was going on beforehand. With obviously mm. the um, policies of of Hasluck through the the fifties and um, and sixties, but also mm. the nineteen sixty two change. Um, enabling um, Indigenous people to enrol to vote if they wanted mm. to voluntarily, mm. um, but they weren't even allowed to vote in in Queensland and Western Australia. So that that must have been a an extraordinary change, um, you know, even even on a symbolic level, regardless of if people were not taking up the um, opportunity to be enrolled. But um, will on the the land rights issue after the um, Yukala Buck petitions, Menzies mm. does announce a committee of inquiry in Parliament to to look into this issue and, and changes are made after that. They they don't unfortunately help the um, the Yongu people um, mm. on that and the mine goes ahead and, and they, they yep. lost their land there. But 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 changes are incrementally being made as the Menzies government and I guess subsequent governments start to navigate the very tricky issue of Indigenous land rights. Is that right? Yes, but I'd come back to the beginning of our conversation here and say that what the Menzies government did um, through Haslock was always focused on the Northern Territory. Yeah. Uh, And, of course, in a sense, what the Commonwealth ends up doing in the 1970s is focused on the Northern Territory too. I mean, the the Whitlam government, when, when it gets into this act, it ends up basically acting in the Northern Territory because it can. It takes a long time for this to become national through native title in the 1990s. So, and um, to give Hasluck and Menzies their due, they set up in the Northern Territory some of the financial provisions which allowed for mining royalty equivalents, monies uh, from... um, Indigenous land, which was then called reserves, uh, to be applied to Indigenous people and purposes. So that was seen as quite progressive too. My colleague John Altman has written quite a bit about that, so how some of the financial provisions were set up quite early. Uh, so there was, you know, a fund from – so that in a sense – that was their response to the Yerkala stuff, you know. Well, we haven't really consulted you about um, letting miners come into your reserve, um, but, hey, you can have the equivalent money that the Commonwealth's getting, the mining royalty equivalents, uh, to, to sort of use for Indigenous purposes. Um, so, in a sense, that was what they did know how to how to respond, but of course that wasn't enough. No, know. no, indeed. But but what was the reception at the time to the royalties being put into a fund for the indigenous people? Were that was there a positive reception? Was it and how was it used? I suspect, as in later years, that it remained fairly firmly under the control of the. Uh, Northern Territory Administration Director of Welfare, uh, and th- th- 
as in Lady Isat, there's a sort of an advisory committee of Indigenous Northern Territorians who advise that d- director about how that money can be spent, but that that's sort of quite contentious. I mean, we have e- examples of this coming right through to the present where uh, it's ultimately up to the Minister, uh, the Commonwealth Minister for Indigenous Affairs, how this money is spent. And so it's sort of, yes, it's money that's, for Indigenous purposes, but it's still under under the control of the Commonwealth Minister. Right. So, so. the so the the local people don't actually get to uh, determine how it's used, which yeah must have been somewhat they, frustrating. They, they advise and they <laughs> advise and recommend, and yes, and sometimes don't their their advice is taken, and then all things are good. But sometimes their advice is not yeah, taken. Yeah. And um, then it, then it says, well, is this our money or isn't it? You know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you can see how the how it plays out. You know. Yeah, absolutely. And ultimately, actually, it's not your money; it's still public money. Uh, we've it's sort of sequestered. You know, yes, we'll put aside this public money for these sorts of purposes, but it's still public money. Mm. So. Mm. Mm. You, can, you can see the tension. They just play through. Yeah, indeed. Um, well, in the early 1960s, um, there was a, a conference on Aboriginal culture, uh, which was a precursor to the establishment of IATSIS, um, mm. which which is also, I don't think, an, you know, a particularly underappreciated development in Indigenous policy in Australia, uh, where mm. there was actually now a, a centre that was studying Aboriginal culture and, and made it really part of, of mainstream intellectual inquiry and started yep. an appreciation, of course, of, of Aboriginal art and, and all aspects of, yep. of you know, language. And, the, and the, it's, a, it's amazing some of the archives that IATSIS has of, of lost languages now, of Indigenous languages, yep. um, all these recordings yep. that were made in the, the 1960s. Can you tell me about yep. the, the impact of that, of that conference and the, and the decision around forming IATSIS? The, the white politicians who get celebrated for this is um, Billy Wentworth, um, who is not – he's really more of he, – he's in the Menzies governments, but he's a backbencher yeah. through most – so he's a sort of a younger person. So he's really more coming through in the uh, Holt period. And so in a sense, the, the old guard here seems to be Menzies and Hasluck who've sort of established – themselves in the late 40s and 50s and then the new guard that's coming through is um, Billy Wentworth and um, Holt to some extent and they are showing themselves to be a bit more receptive to Indigenous group uh, rights and the valuing of Indigenous cultures. So this establishment of the Australian Institute of Aboriginal Studies, which some uh, in in sixty four sixty five, seems to be the push of the the younger new guard, and it's uh, W. C. Wentworth, and that the IATSIS, as we now call it, uh, putting the Torres Strait Islander. Uh, bit in the middle as well. Uh, they still have a Wentworth lecture every year, oh, to, which celebrates. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's their their big annual 
lecture is the the Wentworth lecture. So they sort of celebrate their origins as coming from um, Wentworth, and he was he became minister for in, uh, Aboriginal policy and social security uh, under in the uh, Holt years and then into the Gorton years. Um, not particularly uh, notable in a way, like quite a, a short period, like no, nothing like the 12 years that, that um, Haslock put in and, and effective minister for in, Indigenous policy under um, uh, Menzies by being the Minister for Territories. Um, I suppose that Wentworth maybe started the what you've thought the newer tradition that you turn over these ministers in two or three years. <laughs> um, in Indigenous policy, there's a lot of talk, you know, of the of the large numbers of different ministers we've had and the large numbers of different administrative arrangements we've had in this sort of era since the 60s. Um, and certainly no one has served for as Minister for Indigenous Affairs in the Commonwealth for as long as Hasluck served, oh. like 12, 12 years as... In a, in a portfolio is pretty exceptional. Uh, but there have been some quite long-serving ministers in the Indigenous Affairs portfolio in the years since. So Robert Tickner went for six years. Okay. Um, from 1990, the beginning of ATSIC, right through to the end of the Keating government uh, when they lost to Howard in... Uh, March 96, and Nigel Scullion um, went for, was Minister for Indigenous Affairs under three Prime Ministers, um, so he he was um, a long-serving from 2013 to 2019, so there's another six-year uh, server. So it's not the case that, you know, people came and went very quickly through this portfolio all the time. Um, but you could. There were times when people just come and go fairly quickly. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But it, it shows the um, commitment of Hasluck, doesn't it? I mean, long, like career long commitment of Hasluck that he was in that, uh, the portfolio for so yeah. long for tw- for twelve years, yeah. and then obviously, you know, regarded yeah. very highly that he was a he was appointed as minister for external affairs afterwards. So you know, yeah. quite a substantial political figure. Obviously, someone that that Menzies could trust and rely on to to deliver. Absolutely. With, with by the sounds of it, not a huge amount of of um, intervention from Menzies' behalf. Um, that he yeah. was he was able to to do that and bring through pretty significant reforms in, in that area, and no doubt balancing yeah. some some tricky relations with the states as well on the yeah. issue. Exactly, and and um, well, not only that, but like he he did, there's no doubt that he had a commitment. Haslock had a commitment, and I think Menzies was probably pretty uh, comfortable with that commitment. So, as well as Haslock having worked in this area as a journalist and as a historian in the 1930s in Western Australia, uh, and he returned to it in the 1980s in retirement and mm. wrote a book called Shades of Darkness, yeah. which was telling his, giving his perspective on all these years. So he put the time in 
not only to doing it then, but also to writing about it in the 1980s. And that book, Shades of Darkness, was a great help. I think it came out in 88, and it allowed me to get a sense of what the Hasluck Menzies project was in Indigenous policy in the 50s and mm. 60s. Mm. Um, it, it looked old. By the time I was reading it in 88, 89, 90, yes, it looked old-fashioned, but it, you could see the consistency um, yeah, and the, and yeah, and you could obviously appreciate the progressiveness of their policies in the context yeah, of the times. Yeah, um, absolutely. Because, you know, it's all yeah. very well to think we're we we've got everything perfectly right in twenty twenty two, but we weren't around in nineteen forty nine. They were progressives in their time. There's no yes. two ways about that. And but they were sort of consistent. Um, and so I, I wrote a piece about Haslock where I said it, what he had was a consistent approach and it, in, over time it changed him from being a liberal reformer to being a conservative because 25 years later he still had the same approach. Um, and so, you, you know, the, the times went past him. Uh, but he did do important reforming work in his time and, and, and Menzies supported him in it. Well, thank you, Will Sanders, for a wonderful and illuminating discussion on Indigenous policy under Menzies and, of course, his long-standing Minister for Territories, Paul Hasluck. Um, it's been a pleasure to have you on the Afternoon Light podcast. And the pleasure has been mine, Georgina. Thank you. The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.